0: A friendly reminder, we have a brilliant newsletter at 11FS called Fintech in Five. It's a snack-sized selection of the biggest news stories of the week, and it's delivered straight into your inbox every Friday. Find out more and sign up at www.11fs.com forward slash newsletter. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletter. Hey everybody, my name is David Breer and welcome to episode 75 of InsureTech Insider. We are still recording this remotely and we would love to know what guests you think we should get on this show. Do get in contact and send us an email at podcast at 11fs.com if you know somebody who you really think we should have on the show by now. In today's show, we'll be discussing the most interesting news in the InsurTech and insurance space from across the globe. As always, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr.
1: Nigel Walsh. How are you doing, Nigel? I am fantastic, thank you very much. Excited after being back in London for the first time for a client workshop. It's coming back together again. How
0: was that commute in? That was the weirdest thing when I went in. It just felt bizarre being like around other human beings in like a transportation environment.
1: Uh, It was weird, although I was generally really pleased to see 99.999% of people wearing masks, number one. But WeWork was very quiet. Was that Well, I mean...
0: Yeah, no, well, it's hard to tell why that is these days, isn't it? But uh, we'll see what uh, what happens on that one next. Uh, And it's not just us. As always, we are joined by three amazing guests this week. Uh, First up, making a much welcome return, we have Nikki Daniels, who is board advisor for Honcho Markets and founder and director at Easy Insurance Solutions. Thanks for joining us, Nikki. How are you doing?
2: Uh, Really well, thanks, David. Good to see yourself, Nigel, and uh, some new guests as well for me. So thank you.
0: No worries. Um, for our listeners, can you remind them what Easy Insurance Solutions is, please?
2: Sure. We provide um, support to the supply chain in general insurance. So insurers, brokers, software houses, and quite frequently that's now with what we would call insure tech or fintech companies. Everything from product writing, due diligence, helping them understand the ecosystem of the existing GI insurance.
0: Very, very good. And making a much welcome return, we have Oliver Ralph, the insurance correspondent at the Financial Times. How are you doing, Oliver? I'm good, thanks, David. I'm good. Thanks for having me back on again. No worries. Uh, I mean, I don't have to get people to explain to you what the Financial Times is, I guess, at this stage. I think people probably know what that is. But what, what does your role entail? Uh, so I'm the insurance correspondent. I
3: cover everything in the world of insurance, from life insurance through natural catastrophe
0: insurance to cyber insurance and insurtech and everything in between. Very, very good. So very well-placed for the show, which is good. And also joining us, we have Espen Sabart-Sorensen, who is the Head of Sales at Penny.io. How's it going, Espen?
4: Good, thank you, David. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, no worries at all. And for anybody who doesn't know,
4: can you tell us a little bit about Penny.io, please? Yeah, sure. We're an tech Enabler. We're focusing on online sales of non-life personal and commercial products through distribution partners. We're in Copenhagen-based, working in the Nordics, France, and UK. I've been around now for four years on the market. Very good. It has been way too long since I've been allowed to
0: go to Copenhagen. It is a beautiful place in the world. So uh, yeah, well done on the success of the company and well done for your choice of where you live, like I have to say. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> <you>. <laughs> All right, guys, let's get on with the show then. So first up this week, we have a story over on BBC News. It was that Lloyds of London predicts a £5 billion claims payout. So and, and the insurance market, uh, Lloyds of London, has said it expects to pay up to £5 billion for the coronavirus-related claims, Lloyd's of London, whose results are an aggregate of its more than 90 syndicated members, say it would pay out 2.4 billion in pandemic-related claims in the first half after reinsurance recoveries. Insurers around the world have been hit pretty damn hard with the cost of coronavirus pandemic, although many businesses that have tried to claim have found that the virus cover that they had was not being covered by the policies that they have. Uh, I mean, what do you think on this one? I mean, that strikes like a lot of money, but equally, given the the level of disruption we'd had to the global economy, then maybe 5 billion uh, isn't as big a number as we expect it to be. I mean, Oliver, I'm sure you've been uh, all over this one this week.
3: Yeah, so it's an affordable number of clearly 5 billion is an awful lot of money, but it's an affordable number for Lloyds and its syndicates. I guess that the real uncertainty over coronavirus claims is sort of the prognosis from here on, because Lloyds has estimated that the pandemic as a whole will cost the industry about $100 $100 billion. That's kind of the higher end of industry estimates, but it's a large-scale natural catastrophe. The, the industry can afford it. The question is what happens from now and how much claims will there be coming out of the recession that we're all facing now? Is that going to be very expensive for insurers? The sort of the direct coronavirus-related claims are fairly clear now and are in that $5 billion range, but there could be more to come as the world goes into recession, which is at a time when insurance claims usually rise.
0: Yeah. I mean, you sort of say that, I mean, the insurance industry can afford it, but can they really? I mean, you know, Nigel, we've been in a situation, I remember back to my Aviva days, uh, the minute a flood happened, it was like, well, we're waving goodbye to profits this year. And we're waving goodbye to, you you know, nest eggs in terms of people setting stuff aside. So, you know, can the insurance industry fundamentally afford this level of impact? Because it is untold, isn't it?
1: It is. But like Oliver, we are, this is what we're geared up for, and despite the news and whatever else, you know, it's, you know, you know, when there's a crisis and you say always look for the people that run towards you. This is the this is the insurance moment, it feels like for me, where the insurers in many, many cases run towards the folks that need help. I know we'll come on to that one a little bit later on about some of the controversy in this space. But let's not forget some of the ABI stats that have gone on outside this and what we've paid out. It's like one and a half billion, if not more, already paid out. That's $900 million in business insurance. It's $275 million in travel. It's $40 million in wedding. Not for everyone, but but in many cases, um, I think we should... Don't, don't take this the wrong way, Oliver, but news places are very good at highlighting all the bad things, not all the good things. And Oliver, does, obviously, does a great job in telling you all the good things that we've done. I think this is a good example of... Um, we, we haven't got a choice but to afford it, and then it just breaks down to how the industry is geared up and set up as in Aviva, as a direct carrier, you'll have one element of it. But actually, most of this will be covered by uh, reinsurance. And, and again, we'll come on to that something, uh, later on in the in the show. Hmm. I mean, do you, do you think this is going to, re? I
0: mean, nobody saw this coming, right? So, you know, Corona. if anybody did, nobody shouted loud enough about it, other than, let's say, Bill Gates, like he's been predicting some sort of global pandemic for a little while, right? But he didn't put his money where his mouth was on that one, did he? Um, but like, is this going to change, do you think, the industry in terms of risk appetite? Because, you know, one flood changes the regional view of where, you know, flood risking would be. I mean, are we at a much greater level of risk of this happening again because it has happened or even subsequent
2: breakouts further from a, a COVID perspective? What, what do you think, Nikki? I think, I think you're right. We are going to review everything that's gone on. And again, I agree with Nigel that actually the industry as a whole, we've done a lot of good stuff through this pandemic. Um, pandemic's always been known about. There's been wordings that have covered it to some greater or lesser degree. Um, Yes, it will happen again. The the question, really, for the public is what cover do I need? What cover do I want? And how expensive is it going to be for me? Um, For the first time ever, I think there are a a number of purchasers who have started to read their policy wordings, particularly if you look at the the domestic. Uh, population on travel insurance. What actually am I covered for? What is my health cover under under the these policies? Um, but we're going to cover pandemic to some greater or lesser degree. We might restrict which sections are covered under it. Um, and we're going to be, a, perhaps as an industry, a lot more cautiously confident in our wordings. In other words, we'll be cautious, but we'll make bolder statements. I think that's where it's going. And, and it's going to be a harder market, let's be honest. I'm so old. I remember the last hard, real hard market. But I think we're going to start to see a movement towards actually understanding what we're underwriting and what we're rating
0: yeah and and i guess i mean nigel we should probably sort of move on to the next story because it, it sort of gets more specific i guess at that sense isn't it but the um S-band, do you want sorry do you want to make a point on that before we
4: move on yeah, just to follow up on, on what's already been said, what I think is going to be really interesting now is to see how the, the pricing and customer acquisition strategies start evolving, because insurers have an excellent opportunity now to really be customer-centric and not just talk about it as your annual report. You can go in, you can work with, you can decide to put your prices because that's going evidently going to happen, but you can also work with your churn rate and you're giving out good customer expe- expectations, experiences. So I think that, that's for me, is the key for the next 12, 18 months to see how insurers grab that chance to really... Become customer centricity,
1: but if I just if I add into this, sorry, Dave, if I add into this as well, you flip back to SARS a couple of years back. That all we keep doing is we keep learning from the events that have happened in the past and evolve going forward. So, you know, post SARS, wording's in many cases, which is a good segue into the next story. But wording's in many cases got tightened up, things got excluded, things got included. And you knew what you could and couldn't. Uh, what was included and what wasn't included in many states or many uh, stages as, as a net result. The other thing though, David, to your point about, we didn't see this coming. You know, I almost go back to, and, and none of us were focused on it, but if you look at the World Economic um, Forum's global risk reports, there is a ton of things in there from cyber to climate to pandemic through to um, uh, illicit trade, you name it. There's a whole host of things on that on that report they have been documented to to your point about uh, Bill Gates for a very long time and in many of these instances insurance is at the forefront of these if you think about climate and extreme weather we just haven't really experienced any of these things like a pandemic and now that we have I think it was number eight out of ten from memory I think everyone else will be looking at the other things that the intangibles in some instances like you know the uh, cyber whatever else that we've we've got to grips with over the last couple of years We'll now get to a point where we go, well, we've all lived through it. We all know what it looks like. And we'll all point back to the SARS in this incident and now the COVID-19 incidents. So I think we'll have a framework for working out what else is on that list that we should be looking at going, uh, infectious disease was number eight. What about number seven, six, five, four, three, two, and one?
0: It's a weird list that we're ticking through. It's uh, it's like a to-do list for the apocalypse, isn't it, at this stage? <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a funny one. I mean, I, I do agree with you, Nikki, as well. Is like, actually, now that this has happened, I wonder if people are gonna be a lot more conscious about what they are and aren't covered for, particularly if they've had a bad experience in this period.
2: I mean, I really hope so. Um, You know, I mean, there's going to be a lot of change in insurance, you know, um, come the end of the year when people's health cards may or may not operate in the same way as previously and more people will be looking to traditional travel insurance. Um, And I also think that however much Martin Lewis and others explain the difference between a package holiday and so on and so forth, people tend to just assume they can fall back on insurance. You know, we are last resort, if you like, and if all else fails, that's fine. The insurance will pay. And of course, the reality is, actually you're going to get what you paid for and you're going to get what it was that that you know you were sold properly so let's hope and and you know the customer centricity and and i think esmond's absolutely correct when you when you start to look at the suppliers of insurance product and policy they're going to need to really up their game in terms of transparency and in terms of explaining to purchases exactly what's covered and and i mean you know we're moving on to the next story but i think that, you know whether it's a, a, a commercial customer or a personal customer they deserve that from us as an industry
0: Mm, I agree. Speaking of commercial customers, um, it's like, Nikki. it's like you've done these sort of segues before. It's, it's a be- thing of beauty. Uh, this week, the High Court ruling has come through uh, as of Tuesday, the 15th of September. But Nigel, do you want to expand on this one a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the ruling of all rulings. That's the culmination of a test case being taken to court on behalf of, I think, 370,000 uh, individual um, small, mostly small businesses, uh, and this is back to the wordings about what was included and what was not included, uh, and this has been terrible for some. I mean, let, let's put put aside all the good that we've done, and pick up on the on the negativity because all this has been in the news. It's very easy to go, we've bought ten thousand pounds of insurance cover, we didn't get what we wanted, or we didn't get what we expected. Back to the point about customer centricity and falling back to things. Um, the ruling yesterday, and, and Oliver will be. Ideally, place to go through the 160-page report that came out. That no doubt many of us have been going through with a fine tooth comb to work out what is and what isn't. It, it doesn't mean, but the broad summary is is that many businesses will have now been thrown a lifeline, which I think is great for customers. Um, John Neal said, I believe it's great for the industry, allows us to all move forward. Uh, Christopher, uh, Chris, sorry, Chris Woodward also said the same thing. You know, uh, roadblocks of successful claims as well as those clarifying those that might not be successful so it's not a blanket everything is now in and everything is now or everything's uh, not in there are certain things that have been called out and certain things that have not been called out um oliver do you want to put some more color on this because I know, you, I know you've been writing and and reading about this for quite some time
3: Yeah, as you mentioned, it's a very long ruling. And some of the things have gone in favour of the insurers and some of them have gone in favour of the policyholders. But fundamentally, what we have is at the start of the pandemic, a lot of insurers said very loudly and very clearly to these businesses, no, you are not covered. You are definitely not covered. There is absolutely no way you are covered. And now we have two of the most experienced insurance judges in the country saying, yes, actually these businesses are covered and should have been paid out. So I don't think it's really great for the industry's reputation that for so long these insurers have denied these claims. And for the businesses involved, yes, it's a lifeline. It's it's great news that some of these policies, but not all, will, will pay out or should pay out. But Sadly, I think it's going to be quite a long time before they see some money because there's potentially an appeal that might go to Supreme Court. That will take a few months and the weird decision. Then the businesses have to put their claim together. They have to look through this 160 page judgment to work out if their policy is affected and if it is how much they can claim and and the amount that they can claim will also be argued over by the insurers because they'll have to net off any support money they've had through furlough schemes or any other government support. It will be a a very long and difficult calculation and unfortunately I think that the insurers might well be fighting them every step of the way. So this helps, this is a step forwards for a lot of businesses and there's a lifeline for them but I think there's a long way to go before they see any money and uh, I hope insurers help speed up the process, but I, I do fear that some of them might put more more blocks in the way.
2: See, so that really distresses me. Why so? As an industry, you know, we are there to to provide support, whether you're an individual or a business. And a high court ruling that says, I'm sorry, but in these circumstances, you're liable. Yes, we sought clarity as an industry. And I agree, Oliver, I fear that a number of insurers will put additional roadblocks in the way. We're going into recession. These are people's livelihoods. It's not its not just an objective ruling about some terminology on a piece of paper, although fundamentally it is. You know, And I, and I think as an industry, we need to work to a speedy resolution for those companies that are entitled. Otherwise, these companies will fail in the meantime.
0: Mm. I and mean, it's very rare that the FCA comes out so strongly behind something and doesn't follow through to actually make it so, you know, I think to your both your points, I, think, I guess the challenge is the timescales of it, you know, we've got businesses going out of business, haven't we? And, you know, three years from now, somebody getting a a check through the post of a company they once had is probably not going to be the, the solution that they
4: need. But Espen, uh, what do you think? Yeah, uh, to, to follow on on back of, you know, you have the moment of truth now because you have a claim and you can, you know, we can do it as, as a fight, and you know, who's right, which wording or, or see, you know, do you want to be working with your churn or do you want to keep a customer? So this is this pandemic is hitting across all lines. All customers are affected by it. If you're, if you're looking isolated on that claim towards your customer compared to that customer being with you for many years or for short years and that risk, I think you have as an insurer an underwriting problem your underwriters are too disciplined in the underwriting um field you should be looking more at, at the customer lifetime value and and i completely agree uh with uniki that, that if we as', an, as a, if we can't take these obviously we have, there has to be reason and fairness in what we're paying out but it's allocation of risk is our speciality and we know this best because we've been working with this i mean we have data for the last hundred 200 years or maybe not so much but done it if we cannot stand in now and say okay obviously can't tolerate fraud we can't tolerate that you're you're pushing up your premiums but you know you need us we're here for you this will mean your premium will rise the next three years in your on your contract or the next year in your contract i'm not sure about uk regulations on contracts so but but if you can't take that customer lifetime value you're just gonna you're just fueling the churn rate you're just fueling the churn rate and, and bad industry rec- um, remedy
1: if i um share a couple of points i'm not sure i'm going to help answer the question anyway but a couple of points here is the, the wordings issue was fundamental. And whilst I would never have liked to go, ended up the way it did in terms of a, a appeal or court process, or, um, I mean, there was help needed around disease, um, denial of access and the hybrid wordings. It, it screams, I mean, I was, I've was i had a claim refused personally for travel insurance, and I was referred to page 103 for why I was refer, for referred. So, and that was a simple policy for probably 26 quid or 76 quid, right? So it's, am I going to get to page 103 for that policy? So we have to fix some of these things to make it more customer centric, as been to your, to your point, without a shadow of a doubt. But that said, a terms and conditions are still a terms and conditions. And if they're written in one way, and then interpreted in another, then either they're not clear, or they've been delegated to a third party. And there's been a whole series of commentary around whether it's the insurer wording, or whether it's the broker amended wording, or the delegated authority and who's done what, where that liability sits. So I do worry about that. I worry about whether, whether insurers will appeal or should appeal in, in the process. Oliver, I wouldn't mind your perspective on that one. And then a final one to put a flip in the tail of all of this. If you look at the, the share price of most of the insurers yesterday, they all went up by quite some, quite some amount. Right, so they've all gone up and said, "Actually, was that a good ruling or a bad ruling, or do we just like certainty?"
3: I think on the share prices, the the I, th- I think it's the last one of those that the we just like certainty. And while the insurers have to pay out more than maybe they were expecting at the very start, it's less than some people were fearing on the question of whether the insurers are will appeal or not, it's, it's going to be a very interesting decision because there's parts of the ruling that they don't like. And I'll just give you one small example. Um, some of the policies say they will pay out if there is an infectious disease in the vicinity of a premises. And the judges had a look at what does this mean, the vicinity. Uh, the insurers said it means quite close to the premises. The judges ruled that for COVID-19, the vicinity could include the entire country. Now, the insurers don't like that at all. They say that's far too wide, and then the vicinity clearly should be somewhere closer. So there's, there's potentially grounds to appeal on just that one point, and there'll be many others as well. On the other hand, I think some of them might just say, let's be done with it. You know, the, the outcome of this case was not as bad as we thought it was going to be. It's not as bad as the worst case scenario. Our share prices have gone up. Maybe we should just have done with this particularly difficult episode and try to move on. Um, on the other hand, there are some very important sort of legal precedents at stake, so they may feel the need to appeal. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see what they do. But I think if they do appeal, it will stretch the timelines
4: for those businesses who are affected. I'm just curious, just a question for you. Like, could you see maybe this pandemic also being a positive thing for our industry? Like, Couldn't this fuel that the professionalism in our terms and conditions, the the unclarity, given the ruling you are explaining before, Oliver? Couldn't this fuel a more positive development in how we interact with the clients? What do you think?
3: It would be nice to think so. Um, I'm not sure because insurance companies employ armies of lawyers to help draft their contracts and armies more lawyers to argue about the contracts afterwards. And I think as long as those lawyers are involved, there'll always be complexities in wording. And they will, one of the things they will look to do on the back of the pandemic is to restrict the wordings in some way to limit their liability to pandemics or to other things. So it would be nice to think that the wordings will become clearer, but I don't have any confidence that that would happen.
2: And that's exactly what's happened is that, you know, in the last week alone, I've had three leaflets for me personally saying this section is now reworded to say you have no pandemic. This section is reworded to say, if you travel against FCO advice, that is not a claimable event. So what's happened is we've seen this knee-jerk reaction amongst some of the syndicates and major insurers to literally just shut down the policy wordings, shut down, restrict liability, restrict exposure, deal with what we deal with, let's get the FCA ruling. But I think that now you will start to see if I could say the brighter, sharper, lighter insurers start to re-include those items with a view to what is it the customer actually wants. Um, And if you take travel insurance, well, if you take denial of access, whether it is um, uh, a, a fire that has denied you access, whether it's a bomb threat that has denied you access, whether it's the government that has denied you access to a business, denial of access means I can't go into my office. Now, you'll start to see people defining that, actively encouraging those consumers that have been or feel disaffected. But Esmond's right. As an industry, this is our moment of opportunity. Claim is the moment of truth.
0: Mm. It's going to be super interesting, isn't it? I think where that leads to, because actually that can unravel so many different things for SMEs and SMBs in that space. But I mean, I honestly. I can't imagine for one second this is going to be the last time we're going to be talking about this one on this show. I feel that this has the potential, almost like some sort of pandemic, just to keep going and going and going, doesn't it? But, uh, but unfortunately, we better take a little bit of a break. We'll be back just shortly. Do you follow 11FS over on LinkedIn? If you don't, well, you probably should by now. We make content over there that, well, you probably don't want to miss out on. And we're starting not one, but two new live shows. Like we didn't do enough content already, right? So on Tuesdays, we're going to be diving into the biggest industry news stories. And on Thursday, we'll be grilling some of the biggest experts in financial services on what they really do for a living. So you'll have the chance to ask your questions and get them answered live on the show uh, by the best minds in the industry. So find out more about that over on 11FS's LinkedIn page now. All right, on with the show. So this one's a bit of a fun one, isn't it? Okay, so the story is covered on insurance business mag. And I say a bit of a fun one, a bit of a fun one for us because it was not pleasurable for her in any way, shape or form. Woman cuts off her own hand in attempt to claim fraud. Uh, she gets two years in prison for this as well. So, uh, woman is given two years for cutting off her own hand in insurance fraud scheme. Uh, a 22-year-old Slovenian woman is being sent to prison for sawing off her own hand in an order to commit insurance fraud. I mean, if you're going to commit to something, like. She went all in, didn't she? Really, like in terms of a claim. Uh, So, the court found that the woman and her boyfriend conspired to sever her left hand above the wrist in early 2019. Her boyfriend was sentenced to three years in prison, while his father, who was also involved, received a one year suspended sentence. About a year before cutting her hand off, the woman signed contracts with five different insurance companies that put her in the place to collect more than 1 million euros, about half payable immediately, and the rest in monthly installments. After she severed her hands, the boyfriend and her father took her to the hospital, claiming she had injured herself by sawing branches. Can you imagine the family dinner where the like somebody brought this up as a thing, and then they'd like, you know, rock, paper, scissors, who was going to be the one who did it? Like, what do you think to this one, Nigel? This is uh, extreme to the, uh, to the extreme, really, isn't it?
1: I, I'm not sure whether to laugh or cry. I mean, when you say di- the family dinners, you mean like, pass me, the, pass me the beans. You go, I can't, I've got no arm left. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I generally think this is this is not the first time we've seen situations like this. We, we did a show a long time back, Sarah and I, around pet insurance where people were cutting up pets and storing them in freezers. It never ceases to amaze me the, the lengths people will go to Um, to defraud their insurer. And this is a, I'm honestly, I'm speechless. I I don't know what to say to you. I read it when I first came out and thought, my God, what would go through your mind to go and do this in the first place? Such A a, a lady of such a young age, Um, but equally, I, I, I don't know, how would you ever get away with this sort of thing?
2: I think that's the thing, Nigel. Is how did they expect to get away with it? He'd Googled prosthetic arms a number of months before she'd arrived without a hand. You know, the fraud was written on this from day one, and in, and insurers, for for all their faults, are not that stupid. I mean, there's a human side as well that says, "My goodness, what state do you have to be in to think that this is your solution?" So, so you know, from a and I, you know, I'm not the most empathetic of people when it comes to insurance fraud, but you do think, "Wow." I'm glad you clarified
0: that like uh, you would. I'm just not very empathetic. It's like that's quite a bold statement for a lot of
2: people. But uh, you clarified that well, Nikki. I'm I'm glad you did. Well, it's just, you know, fraud is a huge issue in our industry. We spend millions combating fraud with technology, with, uh, you know, machine learning, with with data, with all sorts of things. Um, But how low do you have to be to think that this is your solution? And you're right. You know, I it, I would need a lot of tequila to even begin a conversation like that.
0: It's a difficult one, isn't it? Like the opportunity, uh, I feel like that's something we're going to have to try at some point. By the way, I'll come back to that in a second. But I, I feel like you know, a million euros for a hand, like you know, you can see why the conversation sort of got to that. And like you say, there are a lot of people who are you know super desperate out there for for it, particularly in this period of time. But we're we're talking about back in twenty nineteen. So I mean, Oliver, like this um, this hit the headlines purely because of the the severity of the the crazy nature of it. But I guess there are some real you know points in this which is uh, actually being in a situation where people are this desperate, but also, you know, to Nikki's point, I mean, you know, internet history sort of comes back and bites you a little bit, doesn't it?
3: It does. uh It does. Um, You can see... Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of money, and so you maybe you can see why people might think of it. But uh, fraud is insurance fraud is rising. The ABI figures out recently said that it showed there were £1.2 billion worth of insurance fraud in the UK last year. That was up 5% on the year before. I suspect the numbers will rise from here. In a recession, people become desperate. People lose their jobs. Insurance, you know, be it – I mean, I don't know if people will go as far as chopping off their arms, but the more classic crash for cash kind of things, you could see those picking up in a recession as people get ever more desperate for money and these are dangerous things to do and and to an extent they they must be successful because that's why people keep doing them if uh if they failed every time, people wouldn't do them. But insurers, I guess, will will keep chasing it. We'll keep using technology, ever better technology, to try to to try to to counter this. Because fundamentally, insurance fraud, the costs are borne by everyone. They raise claims costs for insurance companies, and then pass it on to everyone else via their their premiums. So, so it's it's not a good thing. And uh, but unfortunately, I think it will probably rise over the coming year or so as people get ever more desperate. But I I, I don't expect. I would hope more people don't chop off their own arms.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? Randomly, like my dad accidentally cut into his leg when chopping uh wood. Like literally axe straight through the thing into his leg. Did chop his leg off though. Uh I don't think uh, I don't think we like went for like some crazy claim for stuff, but accidents like that do kind of happen, don't they? But uh clearly not in her case.
1: Yeah, I mean agriculture is is, is famous for this sort of stuff. And then you to to you know, to Nikki's point there's um agriculture insurers that will use wearables now we all track how much we're moving and whatever else they will track them to see how much you're not moving so if you're a, a farmer in the middle of the field and you've not moved for three hours that's actually a bad sign so let's go and get someone to you asap so there's lots of cool technology out there to try and help solve some of these things but uh you know it, when, when we see hands in insurance more often than not it's lloyd's of london and keith richards or david beckham's legs or something like that it's not the fact that we've actually managed to to, to take one off
2: Yeah, And it's not new in this country. I mean, you know, there there were a number of incidents. I think Aviva had a couple. Again, I'm old enough to remember them. So, you know, early 80s, where people would put a spade through a toe while digging a garden because they had that, you know, an element of personal accident colour. Because, you know, if you lose a little toe, it doesn't even change your ability to stand up.
0: Mm. Well, so uh, producer Hannah put here in the notes. Uh, apparently, in the 1950s and 1960s, the city of Vernon in Florida gained notoriety for for a worryingly high number of residents who made insurance claims for accidental. Uh, that doesn't work. Air quotes don't work on podcasts, though they but accidental uh, limb loss. So leading to many to speculate that town residents were literally dismembering themselves for money, which is kind of a bit sick, isn't it? But if, like you say, if people realise that they can get away with it, then they'll they'll give it a go, will not they? Uh, Espen, what do you think on this one?
4: Uh, just uh, when it comes to insurance, well, I mean the stories like this are just fine. It's mind blowing that people will go that to that extent for money. Um, I think unfortunately there could be some coalition between or correlation between poverty and not having money and then seeing like for, for some people 1 million euros over a lifetime is just a huge amount uh, it is a huge amount for everyone but I mean just the the amount just seems bigger in the context um I find it's really sad oh, on the other hand when you look at insurance fraud where people try to we're having it in Denmark at the moment for the government grants that people are trying to fraud uh loss of business to get some of the grants out. Which is I find it sick as well in these times. But, you know, I don't think ever it's part of insurance history and it will be a part of the insurance future. It's human nature, unfortunately.
1: If anyone has five minutes themselves and fancies a, a scoot through YouTube and get very lost, you can actually video you can actually search for uh, accidents or motor accidents on YouTube where people have jumped in front of a car on purpose and not realize they're on and it IS crazy Westman. right? You you I'm seeing you shake your head here. This one. But you will see people jump in front of a car purposefully and not realise they're being caught on dash cam and all of a sudden go, oh, OK, and run off. So um, it's a known, it's a known uh, fraud, uh, gangs and tricksters and whatever else are out there. And the, 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 the advent of technology like dash cams, where they're allowed, they're not allowed in Germany, I believe, um, has helped remove some of this fraud going forward. Mm.
0: Speaking of scooting, and this time not on YouTube, but more literal than that, uh, Nigel, do you want to move on to the uh, the next story?
1: Uh, I, I honestly think Hannah and uh, Alex and Sarah are constantly trolling me, but let's go with it. Uh, so Zego partners with Swedish scooter company uh, Voi, I think that's currently how it's, uh, it's pronounced. Um, Zego it in the UK has joined forces with the Swedish e-scooter operator Voi as a company launches its rental vehicles in the UK. Important to note here, this is rental. I will use the word rental, rental, rental lots of times, as I've been known to mention this once or twice. Uh, brokered by uh, UK insurance and risk advisor Marsh Commercial, uh, Zego will provide insurance for Voy's entire UK fleet with a policy uh, fully integrated into the wider sign-up process to ensure that users have third-party liability as required by UK government. Um, the Void themselves provides e-scooters at competitive pricing with monthly subscriptions for about £33 a month, as well as discounts and uh, free rides for key workers and low-income groups uh voi believes as do many others actually that e-scooters can play a central role in changing how people move in our cities and the and its future is committed to bringing innovative new ways to cities to help reduce emissions congestion pollution and i would say in this one i think we've all seen it the spread of pandemic right so um I don't know about you, I mentioned about my train journey yesterday. I jump on the train and I see three of these damn things, like th- these scooters um, lying in the, uh, in the aisles of, of the train that wasn't very busy, so they were okay. Uh, but we are going to see more and more of these, right? And we've seen it for years with things like fold-up bikes and that sort of stuff. Are scooters just our next fold-up bikes? So um, uh, we spoke to Sten Starr, the CEO and co-founder of Zego, to find out some more.
4: Woi is a leader in the e-scooter market and an extremely important partner for SEGO as we look to establish ourselves as the go-to insurance brand for this exciting high-growth sector. The e-scooter trials commencing up and down the country as we see them happen can offer great environmental and mobility benefits to cities and towns. And we are happy to be playing a central role in their safe and responsible
0: introduction. Very good. I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I feel you're you're slipping into that grumpy old man territory, Nigel. Really, like almost too comfortably at this stage. But uh, but I agree with you though. They they can turn into a nuisance, can't they? I mean, it, really, the, the the thing that we saw with uh, rental bikes recently in London was it became a uh, a pandemic of sorts. Like they were just everywhere on every corner and taking up space. And and actually, it is a real problem, isn't it? You know that the the threat that that leads to. Uh, you know, pedestrians in that sense. And people just thinking that rules don't apply to them in these things is very, very real. So what do you guys think? Do you think this is going to be a a thing that catches on? Or do you think it will just
2: be a fad that disappears? It's going to catch on there's no question it's going to catch on people are going to avoid public transport so if you've got a mile to go you, you know I can see people wanting to use it and and I think you know oddly enough this comes down to wordings again you know if you want to go full circle if we could define where they were supposed to be used you know are they in a bicycle can they go in a bicycle lane should they be on the road can they be on a pavement what happened you know the, we can apply rules and then we can protect and ensure and measure and monitor and do all those good things. You know, a, a lot of the discussion about scooters has been very, very city-centric, which causes me a problem because I'm, you know, in Hicksville down here. Um, but of course, so so people talk about oh, you can give cyclists six feet space, and I'm going, well, our roads are only eight foot wide, so that's a bit of <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit of a problem, you know. Um, but I, I do think that if we can have some definition, should they be insured? Yes. Um the issue is going to be how on earth are you going to measure that? They're already zooming around our local area. And I know that they're zooming around London. Um, And so, you know, the question of registration comes up. Should they be insured? Of course they should. Mm. It's interesting,
0: isn't it? Because, I mean, given the speed that these things can move at, I mean, they're essentially motorbikes without the need to have a motorbike, without the need to wear a helmet, without the need to have an insurance. So I'm starting to sound like Nigel here. Like, what have you done to me, Nikki? Like, this is... uh, (laughs) You've just seen since. You've just seen since. I, I, like Nikki. Yeah, I can see them catching on. And I,
3: uh, in cities, it, well, one of the interesting kind of consequences of the, the pandemic, particularly in London, is that they are pedestrianising a lot of roads or, or thinking of pedestrianising a lot of roads. And you can see some of these roads being used for scooters to help people get around so they don't all have to squeeze onto the tube where the pandemic can spread. So I, I can see advantages. that. Uh, as Nicky and, and Nigel and, and David, I think, have said, it, you need rules and regulations around it. I think the issue at the moment is how much bandwidth the government has to create rules and regulations for these things. There's a pandemic to deal with. There's Brexit to deal with. There's there's no end of other things to occupy the government, and I don't think scooters will be high on their on their list of priorities. But if we're going to use them, we do need regulations about how they're how they're going to be used and how they're going to be insured.
0: Yeah, but I, I guess the I mean precedent bikes. I mean there's there's so little uh, no insurance required. There's you know actually where would that end really? Would if we put in some regulation around the use of e-scooters, would we have to do the same thing for e-cycles, like e-bikes? Would e-bikes require insurance at that stage as well? Nikki's nodding so it's uh To be, to be, fair, for-
2: to be fair if it's got wheels or legs and it's on the road, it should be insured. You, well, you know, when-
1: well, as a, as a mammal, middle aged man in lycra, it, it actually it isn't it the specifics of the UK law. It's probably different in Denmark as i I love your perspective, but in the UK, I believe it's if it's got a motor and pedals, correct, or motor and non pedals. So, for example, a motorised e scooter with no pedals is classified as a motor vehicle.
2: It is. Whereas currently. an e
1: bike with pedals is not.
0: Interesting. So if I put some pedals on my car, do I not have to have insurance?
2: <laughs> I think that's probably further defined under the Road Traffic Act <laughs> of the Correct Gear. But but it is an interesting dilemma because originally, if you remember way back to the 60s, we had step-through mopeds, which effectively you pedaled to get the motor working. And we used to have insurance pad schemes. and It was very cheap. You just wrote it out and tore it off and gave it to the customer. We we don't make sure that our cyclists are insured under household policies. They don't have to be. A lot of them are, but they don't have to be. But if we're going to adjust our transport systems, we need to think about the risk that's associated with that to the general public. And that's our job, isn't
1: it? Esben, what's your, what's your take, Esben, given that this in Denmark and the Nordics has taken off way, way ahead of, I think, the UK, Right.
4: Yeah, I've actually been following you, yours, and Sarah's rants for the last few episodes. Really about this, this uh, towards e-scooters, uh, and they've been in Copenhagen I think for a year or two now. And in the beginning, it was utter mayhem. You had five or six different uh, companies offering them; they were everywhere, and it was a mix be- between this is good for us or this is an, an annoyance. But now it's leveled things out. One of the ones, one of the ones, are big in Copenhagen. And it's leveled things out. And th- there are not that many scooters in the in the area later. There's regulations now. So we have certain zones where you, you're not allowed to drive more than, I think, 10 kilometers an hour. The e-scooters generally don't get up on more than 20 kilometers an hour. So it's more and more of a, like a slow riding bike. or Not a slow riding bike, but a, a bike. And the, if you compare that to some of the electric bikes driving around now and the people bikes, sitting on the electric bikes, I'm more, more scared of them. And the damage they can do than e-scooters because e-scooters sort of don't normalise the ways on on the product size on terms and conditions on liability insurance. I'm not I'm not 100 sure, but what we did see was after about six or nine months, when things started to normalise, the biggest Danish insurers starting offering e-scooters insurance. So like a, a mini moped insurance with liability, with um, uh, casco, with with a third party, and so forth. So it's, it's become now just a bit of a norm. So, you know.
1: I, I think, um if I'm being really honest, and don't tell Sarah because she's not here, I believe these are going to be inevitable. And I think there will be a welcome addition. We just need clarity and consistency because once the toothpaste out of the tube, it will never go back in. And it's already falling out in that you've got people riding on pavements, not on pavements. You've got two people on a scooter and one person on a scooter. And I think... Probably most of this goes back to a claim, probably June 19 last year, when a lady was hit by a cyclist, got caught for the site, the cyclist ended up going bankrupt for a 100,000 in, pounds in court costs. She made a liability claim. If you get hit 20 miles, I say 20 kilometers an hour, whether it's an e scooter or a bike or whatever else, it's going to hurt and could hurt, you know, could put you out of work for quite a while. So they just need to solve those. So if you get hit by a car at 20 miles an hour, or 20 kilometers an hour, it's going to hurt. So I think we just need to just sort those things out sooner rather than later. And as David, you said, this is about capacity of the government. There's so much going on, whether it's um, other insurance issues, a pandemic, Brexit on the priority list. Where is this? You know, it's just another thing
2: but but again can't our industry help itself you know if, if we created a policy that said look guys the government's a bit busy we've got an insurance policy we've got your liability covered we've got your theft covered we've got your accidental damage covered you know at least we could start insuring people for the inevitable collisions could we not
4: is there, is there no insurance companies offering it in the uk market there's no one offering you're it's only illegal. allowed to
2: insure. it's illegal oh, it's they're illegal,
4: illegal. Right. <laughs> sorry i was a, oh crikey that's why I get so
2: upset, unless it's a rental no, scooter. That which yeah. That's why he always puts rental in front of scooter. <laughs> if You can you can rent one and use one legally, but you can't buy one and use it oh, legally. Right. And if, oh, we tie, that's if,
1: that's if we tie the whole debate back to fraud and stuff like that earlier, um, so Voy is the rental scheme, so that's good tick for Zego and, and for Voi. But if you are on a scooter and you get involved in an accident or whatever else happens, it then falls back into... Um, what mib call the uninsured loss because you are in theory driving without insurance and you get penalty points in your license mm.
0: and as you say i mean this is where i mean this is where people are getting hurt isn't it and uh, and that's the hard thing isn't it it's not just normal people getting hurt either nigel there's there's actually some uh, some rather uh, rather interesting celebrities sort of coming across with these things as well
1: honestly this is a double troll by hannah alex and sarah right now uh, our next story which we will be very brief on because it's quite i was it's funny because it's serious but uh it is celebrities as well and we see lots of people scooting around these things no pun intended but rihanna was involved in an accident not too long ago she's absolutely fine don't worry folks only suffered minor bruising on her face after falling off a scooter um, and there are a number of bike accidents that this way every single day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't see one physically or, or online. Um, the team here have all had a go at some headlines. I'm going to ask you all for your on the spot solution, but we had a go at things like she sent out an SOS. I'm going to test your pop music here, folks. She found herself ponder pavement. She was wearing, was she wearing headphones? I guess she didn't stop the music. And my one. Was she under an umbrella? Ow, ow, ow. <laughs> I think oh. the
0: pond, pond, pavement one was definitely my favourite in those ones. But uh, yeah, I, I have to say that did give me some chuckles when I bumped into that on Slack. But uh, what
1: have you got? Um, what have you got, David? What's your headline, Oliver? What's yours? Come on!
0: I mean, I wish I knew way more of Rihanna's music to be able to really partake in this one. But, uh, I mean, Oliver, if you, if you come in with like a Rihanna song that I've not heard of right now, then I'd be, I'll be super uh, impressed.
3: I'm afraid I know about as much about Rihanna's songs as you do. But I can, o- I can only <laughs> bow to Nigel's
0: superior pop knowledge. As we all do. Um, (laughs) Of course, uh, there was another story that happened this week that we don't have quite enough time to talk about. But uh, Lemonade, the insurance company powered by artificial intelligence and behavioral economics, announced on Tuesday, the 15th of September that France will be its next European market. Uh, We're going to be talking about this a little bit more on the next episode of InsureTank Insider
1: News, but we thought we better mention it now just in case you didn't think we noticed. Just before we leave you, I spoke to Guy Farley from Bought By Many, who was this week crowned Tech Champion of the Year at the Tech and Innovation Awards. Let's hear from him now. Welcome to InsurTech Insider Interviews. I'm Nigel Walsh, and it's my absolute pleasure to be joined by Guy Farley, CTO and co-founder of Bought By Many. On Thursday, the 17th of September, Guy was crowned winner of Technology Champion of the Year at the Tech and Innovation Awards. Today, Guy is here to tell us all about the awards and what this means for him and Bought by Many. Guy, thanks for joining us on the show. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Nigel. How are you? I'm I'm enjoying the last bits of sunshine, actually, yeah, so yeah, exactly. uh, hopefully they'll, fingers crossed, we don't want to go into lockdown again and have rain and misery, but let's see, fingers crossed. But you, So you must be delighted, right? So to start off, can you explain to those that don't know, if you wouldn't mind, what Bought by Many is?
5: Yeah, so sure. Bought By Many is um, an insure tech business, and we are focused on providing the best insurance and the best service possible to
1: pet parents everywhere. Pet parents. Now, is that a marketing slogan? or Is that, is that a, we're absolute fans of pets here?
5: It's, it's uh, well, so pet parents is really, a, a, I guess, almost a, it's not really a Bought By Many thing. It's a kind of uh, generic term out there in the market at the moment. I guess people are starting to see pets much more as a member of the family than was probably true 10 or 15 years ago. And so that market for insuring them, providing them with, you know, additional services and pampering, if you like, is, is growing. Um, and Bought by Many is right in the middle of it.
1: Fantastic. I mean, I, I, am a, I grew up with dogs. I've got a cat now. I guess that makes me a pet parent. I've never looked at it that way. I've always put the kids first, but uh, I know many others that don't and they're probably easier to look after. Let me, um, let's start with the founding story. How did, it, how did Bought by Many all come together?
5: Uh, Yeah, so uh, obviously uh, Stephen Mendel is the CEO and my co-founder. We were were working together at at an investment bank in London and sort of during that experience we we sort of noticed a huge discrepancy between how uh, corporate customers were treated relative to individuals interacting with financial services and really thought something should be, you know, there should be an opportunity to do something about that, Um, kind of at almost exactly the same time we were leaving those roles and I was building prototypes on the Facebook API and Stephen was trying to get himself health insurance outside of the corporate scheme Um, and those two sort of things came together and we just thought surely we can create groups of people large enough to look like institutions and get the sort of deals you would get as an institution buying into financial services. Um, We decided that general insurance was the place to do that because it it's relatively easy part of financial services to get into, you know, compared to investment management or something like that. Um, and so we created the original bought by many concept of uh, putting groups together of people with a, a, an unusual insurance problem, like you've got a house on a floodplain or a garage full of expensive road bikes or something, as I'm sure you have, Nigel, um, and getting those insured. <laughs> no comment, my wife won't listen. <laughs> um, and so, um, You know, so we were putting people in touch with the insurance industry to find products that they would otherwise have found difficult to do. And because we were creating large volumes, we were getting them discounts into discount codes to go through or discount deals to go through and buy those policies. Um, We got sort of disillusioned with what the incumbent insurers could and would offer. You know, we wanted policies bespoke to our customers and changes, and it was very difficult to make those things happen. Uh, So we decided to put our own products into that mix. And that we picked on pet insurance because uh, we had a large volume of pet owners in our groups, and we spoke to them about what they liked and mostly disliked about pet insurance. Um, And so, and came up with our own product ideas and product structures. And we have three or four products which were at that time completely new to the market, like insuring pets with uh, pre existing conditions, or fixing your policy for life, or providing money back if you don't claim. These were all in direct response to problems we heard from people in the market and then so in 2017 we launched the pet insurance kind of within that group model if you like um and it just took off far more than we had expected um you know and, and to some degree the business has now followed that that success right we we um you know we've had to grow significantly and grow our tech significantly uh, to service that pet insurance customer base. And now we're kind of starting to see the opportunities to really expand that into, you know, being the best we can possibly be for pet parents.
1: I mean, that's just wonderful hearing. I, In all my years of knowing Charlotte and Stephen and everyone else, uh, Oki and the team, and Oki's been on the show a number of times, as you know, um, I don't think I've ever actually heard the founding story said that way. And now I hear how you've described it. The words brought by many make sense. I was going to say to you, where did bought by many come from? But right. I think that actually makes sense.
5: Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, we obviously we launched in 2012 and, and the whole kind of um, sharing economy was really big news in 2012. Um, and uh, buying domains with .com on the end is very hard. <laughs> uh, so bought by many works really well for both of those things.
1: <laughs> so, Congratulations on winning the Tech Champion of the Year Award. That's fantastic news. Anyone who listens to the show knows and is absolutely passionate about uh, you know, the whole tech arena. Tell us what it means winning the award to you, first and foremost. What's the experience been like?
5: Um, uh, well, I guess I guess somebody gets a little muted because there was no big dinner to go to. I had no excuse to get my dinner jacket out of the cupboard, um, <laughs> which would have been nice, but, you, could, you know, there we are. <laughs> um but, Horrible times,
1: right? Horrible times. Well, exactly.
5: Yeah, I, I would say, so first of all, the, the fact that it's voted for, you know, I was just completely blown away by that. I I just wasn't expecting that to, to be the case. So that was a very pleasant surprise indeed. Um, and then subsequent to, to that, the number of congratulations that have popped up on my LinkedIn feed has, has just been amazing. So uh, just a, I, I don't know, I guess I guess, a bigger experience than I was expecting from that perspective. Um and I guess my wife putting it on Instagram has also generated uh, quite a bit of comment, mostly from people I used to call friends. So.
1: <laughs> well, I, I think it's fantastic. And, and if I'm honest, I think we were saying before we before we started, the, the role of CTO is probably the most important role in any of the organisations that I engage with right now, because they're the ones that are bringing it all together, making it work, because we can't... I, I don't get me started because I mean, I got this whole rampage and rant about how CIOs and CTOs should be on boards of organizations as they are in insurtech because we're critical to everything that we do. And given the way you've just described the tech about bringing groups of people together, that's super critical, right? So I, I guess to, to that point, how did you get into the old CTO career first and foremost? And how are you finding growing and acquiring talent right now?
5: right yeah so um i i got into software i did an engineering degree like a manufacturing engineering degree i um went on to icl's graduate training scheme back in the day when we used to have an insurance technology industry or a you know hardware industry um and during that process i just just discovered that i preferred software to hardware and persuaded icl to let me go into software um they i, I sort of grew up through that scheme which was which was excellent um and then I, the last thing I did with them was I was the software development manager for First Direct's online bank, um, which was just an amazing project. It was kind of the leading online banking project in Europe at the time. And obviously that opened a lot of doors having been through that process. Uh, I then did a couple of uh, roles abroad. I went to India and, and San Francisco to be to sort of help start offices for a small consulting firm. Um, and then came back and did uh, consulting, software consulting in the financial services industry, largely insurance, and that's when I ended up uh, working with Stephen actually, um, and so how we how we got together. Um, and I think in terms of the CTO thing, uh, like uh, I mean. The, the best way to do this is to create your own company. And then you kind of have to be the CTO, don't you? <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, if I'm being honest, I've kind of had to grow up with that, right? Because I, I hadn't really had a role this large prior to bought by many taking off, if you say. So, um, so I guess my role has been, my growth in CTO has been somewhat organic.
1: Fantastic. How how do you keep learning there? Where do you keep going? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's down to hiring brilliant talent time and time again, but how do you keep yourself fresh? Because it, it feels like the pace of change right now is crazy. So how, how do you stay on top of all these things?
5: Yeah, uh, yeah, it is crazy. And yes, and the number one thing to do is have really good people who can keep pace with all these things <laughs> in your team. You know, um, but yeah, absolutely the, the key to it. Because, because actually one person can't really keep abreast of all of this stuff, you know. If you just think about how even even front end technology has developed in the last five or six years, that it's becoming an engineering discipline in its own right, you know. So you do need people that specialize, that love it, that keep up, you know. And my from my perspective, I I keep up by talking to all these folk, you know, asking them what what they're working on, what the developments are, and just making sure that I understand it at a principles level. um And then the thing that's um, Really changing for me is going from a techie to a manager, um, and so books—you uh, know—all the sort of, I guess, the classic texts, texts on product management and DevOps and development. So um, the two, the two books that, that we, as a business, uh, sort of base ourselves around, is Inspired for project management and Accelerate for the kind of DevOps world. Um, yeah, so I guess that's that's my
1: well. I mean, plan to keep up. <laughs> And that sounds like some very, very strong tips to fellow or up and coming CTOs that are looking to get into the spaces and again in your journey of how you've gone into this, I guess going forward and before we wrap up, I mean, as the business grows, I mean, scaling must be a real interesting one to look at as you've gone from, you know, a small number of customers to hundreds of thousands of customers and almost, you know, the most trusted pet provider out there. It's fantastic to see even things like your video in, your video consultations, which I still I can't wait to see the cat do that. For anyone who's not looking at the video, because there's no video, obviously, I'm trying to see a cat get into a box. Anyway, how do you scale the business going forward? I mean, have you noticed any, any major changes as you've done this?
5: I mean, yes. <laughs> so the biggest the biggest change for us was moving from the kind of membership subscription model with affiliate links to other insurers to becoming a full stack insurer. I mean, or insurance provider, I should say, to to, to be technically correct. But we do all the things that an insurer does apart from the underwriting. And um, so our technology stack has just, or our technology estate has just grown exponentially. Um, and obviously, to support that, uh, so has the team. Uh, I think. You know, we were very fortunate in our timing that we moved into that full that kind of insurance tech space when cloud and serverless was just reaching mainstream. So we've always been entirely cloud based, entirely serverless, um, which has meant from a, you know, a pure volume scaling perspective, we really haven't had to worry too much. Um, obviously, we still have to scale how we operate as a team. Um, we've gone through two big changes there we moved into a sort of spotify squad model around about 18 months ago i think now and that was a huge change for us where it just created autonomy for all the the guys in the team to go off and get stuff done um and and i think that you know it boosted our productivity and our satisfaction levels within the engineering team. And then, just somewhat more recently, but we've we've moved into a, a sort of product team model where each of those squads is supported by a product manager and uh, business users and experts uh, to to run as an autonomous team focused on delivering particular business metrics. Um, and those two things have been, you know, real revolutions in our ability to be to deliver as a as a technology team.
1: But they, but they sound like evolutions as a, as a result of sheer scale and size of teams as well, which is quite interesting. So, guy, I mean, I, I, Hannah will give out to me a time in a minute if I if I don't wrap up. I mean, I, it sounds like you and I could talk for hours on this thing. You've given me a great idea for for a CTO show that we should do for for InsureTech Insiders, uh, which would be fascinating. Um, the one of the other things that you mentioned just in your last point that was really really uh, hit home was you talked about technology stack to technology estate. And that's very much the difference between a startup and a mature, scaled organization.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So our, our technology estate includes the stuff we've built, but it includes, you know, tens, if not a hundred SaaS services that sit around the edge of that for, you know, our call center and our ticket management and training and, you know, all, all the operate. Even Slack is a big, really key part of it because operational teams talk to each other on Slack the whole
1: time, you know, answering Don't- so don't get me started on slack right. I mean, it's a whole different religion right. hey look with with that guy thank you so much for joining where can people find out more about you other than your wife on instagram
5: well, i mean so bought by there's an about us page which has a little bit about me and, and uh, a little bit about the engineering team you know we are as you imagine uh, constantly hiring looking for great talent um, and so if anybody wants to come and to join our team we'd be delighted to hear from you
1: we will certainly include that in the show notes as well. As for me, you can find me on Nigel Walsh at Twitter, fighting the good fight for pizzas, Peloton and e-scooters. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Guy Farley from Bought by Many. OK, folks, that wraps up this week's new show. Uh,
0: where can people find a little bit more about you, Nikki?
2: Um, uh, LinkedIn and uh, Twitter if you really want to.
0: Very good. Espen, where can people find out more about you?
4: Uh, I think the easiest would be penny, P-E-N-N-I dot I-O, or on our LinkedIn page as well, Penny LinkedIn. um, We're quite active in there with content as well. That's the easiest place to find us. Fantastic. Oliver, where can people find out more? Uh, You can read my
3: articles on ft.com and find me on Twitter at Oliver underscore Ralph.
1: Very
0: good. Mr. Walsh, where can people find out more?
1: working out, making pizza, giving out about scooters on Twitter. And Nicky's here to join me for the next boot camp at Nigel Walsh.
0: <laughs> very good. So many different levels of advice coming from Mr. Walsh these days. It's, uh, it's very, awesome. very good. It is. I know, like life advice, food advice, yeah. exercise advice, insurance advice. Like, I think he's got you covered, hasn't he? Which is perfect. Uh, as should all insurance companies as well, right? Which is nice. All right, guys, as for me, you can find me over on LinkedIn. I'm just David Breer. Uh, Thank you so much for the guests for joining us, Nikki, Oliver, Espen, and Nigel, as always, thank you very much for making time. As always, you can find us over on Twitter at Intex Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review. It really does help other people find the podcast as well. And if you've got any other suggestions, I mean, a little bit less scooter chat, a little bit less pizza, feel free to give any suggestions. It's just podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Goodbye.